Hello and welcome to TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education, a new medical education podcast aimed at trainees with an interest in medical education. I'm Dr Rob Cullum, I'm a GP trainee and a member of the TASME committee. For those of you that haven't heard of TASME before, we're the trainee branch of ASME, the Association for the Study of Medical Education. ASME is a UK-based medical education organisation with a focus on promoting scholarship in the discipline. Each month, TASME, along with JASME, our medical student and foundation doctor group in ASME, host a medical education-themed Twitter discussion, which we call Hashtag MedEdForum. Here we discuss interesting medical education topics, and going forwards, each month, TASME time, we'll be picking up on the same topic and exploring it in greater depth with an expert in the field. Do feel free to join us at future hashtag MedEd forums on Twitter. Further details can be found on the events page of ASME's website, as well as on our Twitter page. You can also follow along on the evenings by using the hashtag. In April, our hashtag MedEd forum explored the topic two years on medical education throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. For our first podcast, we really wanted to explore this further, so alongside my colleague, Dr Katie Stevenson, another member of the TASME committee, we were lucky enough to have a conversation with Dr Victoria Luong, a medical education research associate and PhD candidate in Dalhousie University, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Victoria recently published a really insightful paper on the experiences of medical educators during the early stages of the pandemic in the ASME journal, Medical Education. Her paper, entitled A Phenomenological Exploration of the Impact of COVID-19 on the Medical Education Community, really digs deep into the experiences of educators from across North America and also from Switzerland during the pandemic, including people at various career stages within medical education. So make a cup of tea and join us for this inaugural episode where we will explore the experiences of medical educators and the impact on medical education more widely using this paper as a springboard for further discussion. If you want to read the paper, we've also included a link to it in the description below. Hello and welcome to uh, the evening's episode of TASME Time where we're going to be discussing all things medical education through COVID and our special guest for this evening is the wonderful Victoria Luong and um, she has come all the way well obviously virtually from Canada which is very exciting and Victoria is a research associate and PhD student at Dalhousie University in Halifax Nova Scotia in Canada and she's contributed to a number Number of different projects related to the social and material aspects of medical education. Um, her graduate work now focuses solely on the role of personality in the workplace and the experience of medical trainees encountering struggle and underperformance. Um, welcome, Victoria. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it, uh, it's just fantastic to have you and we feel very privileged for our first episode to have someone joining us um, all the way from the other side of the Atlantic so so that's great. Um, as a sort of starting question it'd be really interesting for us and for our listeners um, to hear a little bit about your career to date and how you got involved in medical education. Yes uh, of course uh, so I have what 
some people have said is an unconventional background, but I feel like a lot of people have unconventional backgrounds um, more than we think sometimes. Uh, so I started my career in medicine. I went to medical school at the University of Sherbrooke, uh, but on the Moncton campus, that's in New Brunswick. And somewhere along the line came to this realization that um, although I really loved medicine and I thought that medicine was a really, really good career, meaningful career, an important career, it just didn't quite fit right with what I wanted to do. What I really like to do more than anything is write. Um, writing is my favorite thing. And when I was younger, I actually really wanted to be an English teacher because I really loved analyzing text and finding themes and making comparison and metaphors and all of these sorts of things. And so when I found the world of medical education and specifically qualitative research in medical education, it was like I hit the jackpot because it was really this combination of my experience and my knowledge in medicine with my personal experience being a medical student and living the medical curricula um, with this love for writing and for textual analysis, that sort of thing. So yeah, in medicine, I decided to finish my degree anyways, because let's be honest, why not? It's a great degree and obviously a really, really good learning experience, a growth experience. Um, and I'm really grateful for having uh, done that. After I finished my degree in medicine, I did my master's in health professions education at Acadia University. And then while I was doing that, my one of my professors, Anna McLeod, she gave me a job in research at Dalhousie Medical School. So I've been doing that for a few years and I just started my PhD a year ago. That's amazing. And I'm sure it will, I'm sure several of the things you've said there will really resonate with a lot of our listeners. Um, and it certainly resonates with me and particularly my experience of, um, I hated English at school. So to be fair, not that bit <laughs> so much. Um, but I think for me, I'd always wanted to be a teacher. Um, and I think that was what drew me to medical education. Um, and actually, interestingly, as much as I didn't like English at school, what I love about qualitative research it, it are the same things as you. It's looking for those themes and pulling that together. So I think yeah. I can completely see um, why you fell in love with that. I think it'd be really good for our listeners um, to to understand. Hopefully, they'll have had an opportunity to to read your paper um, about um, the experience of educators during um, the pandemic. But it'd be really good as a starting point, um, maybe to just hear about what led you to that topic. Right. So, so for the paper itself, um, so all credit to Sarah Berm. She was the one who originally um, sort of conceived of the study and got it up and running. So I don't want to put words in her mouth, um, but I will speak to what initially drew me to the study. So there were a lot of things. So I think in the beginning of the pandemic, if we all think back to 2020, so there were a lot of cancellations, uh, students were at home, even physicians, a lot of their surgeries were canceled, a lot of their work was canceled. And so everyone was really scrambling to get everything online. And so during this time, there was a lot of research being published on um, online virtual medical education. So a lot of these quick quantitative survey-based studies to really get an idea of, okay, what tools do we have out there for virtual teaching and what can we do? So there, there were those studies and there were also studies um, like commentaries, perspective articles, um, and these editorials, these, these individual people 
telling us about their experiences and the challenges that way they were experiencing, especially in terms of redeployment and just fear of like what's going on, um, of hospitals being overwhelmed and that sort of thing. Um, and so during this time, so we had those papers, uh, these uh, quantitative papers about virtual learning and these these people talking about the challenges that they were experiencing, but we didn't have yet these really in-depth um, qualitative rigorous theoretically grounded studies about um, what that experience is really like. And it was really this opportune time. I, I don't think anyone has experienced anything quite like this before and um, such an opportunity for a rich exploration of people's experiences. And that's what drew me in. Um, and also uh, just to note one thing that really I found really interesting in this experience is the idea of the collective struggle. Um, I think a lot of the time, depending on what situation we're in, if we're a student, if we're a physician, we're all dealing with our own problems sort of individually. But this is what was interesting about COVID was we're all kind of thrust into the abyss at the same time. We're all experiencing this. We're all in the same boat and we're all collectively experiencing this struggle. And in some ways, this has brought us closer together um, and just by talking about it. So those were really some interesting things that drew me to to research and think about this this um, idea of medical educators' experiences. Thank you. Thank you for explaining your incredible work. It's And I think this concept or this finding of this collective struggle is not just limited to your own population in in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. I think just reading it, and you don't even necessarily need to have read it, you just reflect on your time during the COVID-19 pandemic. But it echoed and resonated so much with myself as a medical educator but equally just as a as a doctor as well and also as a person it was really quite profound actually and I think that reach even within you you've you've surveyed you've interviewed and sort of analyzed your your subset of participants but actually I think that would resonate with people globally um not just not just within within your sort of local area which is really really impressive for a a piece of qualitative work it's it's really fascinating I I myself worked as a lecturer during the um, pandemic um, so yeah we we switched obviously to online within weeks and at the same time it was the it was the March 2020 when I sort of was starting out as a lecturer switched from face-to-face teaching to go online but equally it was my first week back at work clinically as well so it was this huge sort of like juxtaposition of starting to being terrified starting my new clinical job and equally terrified of doing all this work virtually um did did you find anything in your in your paper or in your research that potentially resonated with those sort of feelings of sort of fear around clinical work, but also fear around medical education work as well. Right. Yeah. I think your experience really resonates with a lot of people. Yeah. That's what was interesting about, because we looked at the whole medical education community. So people who weren't in clinical spaces, people who were in clinical spaces and those experiences are very different, but there are certain things that are universal like that experience of uncertainty. I think that was a huge part of what people were talking about, just not knowing what was going to come and that fear and that 
um, it was just exhausting for people to just not know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that was something that was really universal um, between everyone. And I'm interested as well in sort of the downstream effects. So I just came back from CCME and one of the presentations um, was talking about how so our, our interviews were in 2020 when people just moved online. Uh, so two years, that means that people who are starting residency um, this year are the first cohort that didn't have, didn't have any in-person clinical experience or very limited or all that was always COVID tainted. So what is that going to look like? Because um, their um, clerkship experience was very different from the years that are coming before it. So I think, um, yeah, the initial experiences with the COVID pandemic are really interesting and they continue to, um, there continue to be these open questions about what the downstream effects um, are going to be. That, again, really resonates with the conversation I had with a colleague just last week about the challenges that are going to face our foundation doctors, so the the F ones, so newly qualified doctors in the UK who who will be starting work at in end of July, beginning of August here, who will have similarly had really limited exposure to to various clinical settings in comparison to their predecessors, and and what that will look like, mm-hmm. um, and. And the challenges that everyone will face, and particularly, I guess, from a thinking around medical education, those colleagues who work in um, postgraduate medical education, those educational supervisors, clinical supervisors working with those newly qualified doctors, it's going to be a real challenge. And it's going to be a challenge for all of us, whether we have a formal role or or indeed more of an informal role, um, and just sort of providing that additional support on the shop floor. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because I guess we don't know um, and and as you say this is going to be the first year that 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 negative impact's going to really be seen mm-hmm. I think yeah that's a really good point and I wonder um, there are de- there are definitely I, I I feel like there have been some talks about needing extra extra training and extra because a lot of People who aren't, we with moving everything rapidly online and moving to telemedicine, um, there are a lot of people who aren't very familiar with those te- technologies or, or familiar with the affordances that they can bring us. And um, I was just working on a scoping review on online med- under online undergraduate medical education, and there since COVID, there's been this outpouring of educational innovations and technologies that could be really, really useful. And I think that if we did provide that training to people and had more access to IT professionals and and people who can help us transition to this new post-COVID era, I think that'll be a really, really important step moving forward too. Absolutely. And out of interest, have either of you had any sort of experiences of sort of learning how to get better with tech or anything like that in your own sort of medical education experiences because I for one I feel like I'm still really bad at it and I spent almost 18 months doing zoom sessions um, zoom small group sessions recording presentations on various different softwares trying to get better at it but eventually just having 
some sort of semblance of a PowerPoint with like my face speaking in the corner. And I'm still pretty sure that that wasn't that great. Um, Has anybody got any ideas or has anybody experienced anything that might be a little bit better than my sort of experiences of PowerPoint? I guess for me, what's quite interesting is this. I've been taking part. um, There's been a scheme um, in the UK to support doctors that have been uh, or medical students sorry that have been displaced from medical schools in Ukraine um to support delivering teaching to them online and I, I happened to have done a session on on urology this morning and it was part of it was to just go over um digital rectal examination and it was really really hard to do that when I'm used to delivering that in a classroom with a model and a video isn't quite the same um and to be able to to try and get them to to understand the difference between a normal feeling prostate and one that may be indicative of um, malignancy without actually being able to demonstrate that. And yes, the description, you can give an idea, but for some of these students, and, and they are a real mix of stages of, of medical school, for those that are at the beginning of their clinical training um, at medical school, they have no reference point. We say hard and craggy. Now, um, uh, hard and craggy means something to me and it doesn't if you've never felt hard and craggy um, and it it was a really interesting experience when you start to then get some of the questions um, and I don't know how you do that and I, I'm not convinced technology can take away some of those um, that aspect of um, experience I guess right. I'm interested um for the both of you, um, how much technology, so now that you both are in clinical spaces, um, how much technology are is incorporated into your daily practice? Well, as I'm sure you are aware, and we are speaking to an international audience, hopefully, um, we both work within the NHS in the UK, so the National Health Service. It's a um, publicly funded healthcare system, which is technically free at the point of care um, here in the UK, which is an amazing thing. It's a, it's one of the the gems of the UK, and it's something that us Brits are extremely proud of. But we have um, faced several decades now of extreme cuts and expending to um, healthcare provision, and that extends to sort of all spheres. And actually, some of the technologies within the NHS um, are pretty. Um, past it I think Rob would would agree and in terms of novel technologies um, I know that there has been funding and investment into primary care especially to do a lot more telemedicine but I'm not there at the moment I'm working within secondary care so I haven't had much direct experience with that I think there are some things I'm working in a community rehab hospital at the moment and something we have benefited from here is the virtual ward round and the virtual MDT. So actually having just one clinician um, with a laptop on wheels going in to face a patient and have a patient consultation with the entire MDT available on something like Microsoft Teams or any something similar to that like Zoom um, to be able to be part of that consultation, it comes with its own um, difficulties, obviously. Um, some of our patients are elderly and might not be familiar with that sort of technology and it can detract from that patient mm. interaction. But equally, that's involving the entire MDT in a ward round discussion, which is very beneficial for ongoing planning for that patient care. Um, 
how about how about yourself, Rob? Um, any any technologies from from the coalface? Um, I certainly think it. I think one of the things to highlight in is that in the UK, there's massive variation in how well technology is used, and I think that causes all sorts of problems. And um, so, in the hospitals that I've worked in most recently, um, there is a very limited amount of technology. We still use paper notes. Um, etc and that in itself when it, it made everything really easy when we were delivering a lot of face face care again so if I think about bedside teaching it was really easy to go onto ward you'd find the patient's notes you'd be able to look at the notes with the students after you'd seen the patient and pull that all together you'd be able to encourage students to look at patients notes after they'd seen them in quite an independent way and the trust I worked in wasn't prepared to give students access to log into the blood system for example to see patients blood results off their own back so at least with the paper notes they had that opportunity and I foresee if that hospital or when that hospital moves to having all digital notes that actually that will just be another barrier to student learning but I can also see how in the pandemic it may allow if we take radiology teaching I suppose the fact that radiology is all digital now it allows you to share images with students in a much easier way than having to put a film up on a, a light box so, um, but I, I i get the impression that the uk is fairly behind when it comes to the use of novel technology um it may not even i'm not sure some i'm not sure uh, digital health records qualify as novel technology anymore anyway um but i think we're we're certainly behind north america on that that from from what i understand that's interesting um not to, i know we're not supposed to talk about well, we're not aiming to talk about this paper, but the online paper that I did, that's one of the things that we found was that the technologies that already had some technology component to it, like radiology with like, you have to look on it. Well, you can, they used to have that printed out, but um, technolo- um, learning activities that already had some sort of technolo- technological component to it adapted really well to online learning, but those that that didn't really have that component to it um, didn't always work out that well. Please do share more. So um, please don't (laughs) feel like you have to just talk about the one paper. That's the one that we obviously were attracted to, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of really important work on um, the effects of COVID and the pandemic on medical education. And that's what we're here to discuss. So please do share more. So what sort of things have come out of that, that, that early stages of research that show some ease of transition um, for certain areas of medical education, which ones are easier essentially and which ones are harder perhaps? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of, so something that was, that we found was really positive about COVID was the um, virtual electives and rotations, just in terms of increasing access. Um, And there was often a lot of more intake to those very highly specialized um, specialties that, not everyone would necessarily necessarily travel to go to. So having them online really increased exposure to them. Um, our paper talked a lot, um, had these three big themes that we we're looking at, effectiveness, um, inclusion, and wellness. And essentially we, f- we found that a lot of the papers were focused on the effectiveness of these interventions, which makes sense. This was the first year of the pandemic. So everyone was trying to figure out what to do 
Um, but we found that there could be more focus on these issues of wellness and inclusion. So definitely that piece um, with the virtual electives, um, people, for example, people who could normally afford to travel um, and access those, those people in rural communities who can't really um, go to those big hospitals, increase access um, and diversity for, for people who wanted to um, attend those electives. So that was really good. The ones that um, we found that didn't work really well were anything that needed like a hands-on component. So like practicing physical exams um, and communicate. So there was this component of communication skills that was affected uh, because they weren't in person and the interaction is different. But at the same time, it increased student skills with telemedicine, which is going to be a really important part moving forward. So that that could be an added benefit as well. So, um, so lots of interesting things that came out of that study. Thank you so much. I think that the part about um, actually the virtual electives being really beneficial to winding access is, I think that's really a really interesting finding and reflecting yeah. on sort of our own experiences here in the UK. Um, when it comes to medical electives for medical students, there's a huge sort of um, idea that it has to be an international elective um, that still sort of persists within the UK, um, that students may be expected to travel abroad to experience um, medicine elsewhere, which in itself is it is important, it's interesting, um, but equally it's absolutely not necessary and can be really discriminatory to students from um, lower income backgrounds and I think that that finding would probably have resonated with some of the students in, in, in the UK as well, especially those who perhaps can't afford to travel far um, and were sort of maybe forced to go online, but equally having some really beneficial experiences from those virtual placements. I was going to say what's quite interesting as well uh, about that, and I guess links is a theme that comes out from both both pieces of research that we've talked about today is that it feels like this is a watershed moment for medical education in every sense and that we almost are at a point now we have to make some decisions about what do we take forward as really positive things the pandemic has taught us how to do things in a better way versus um, what actually at the moment are we not ready to move online or or change the way we do things and I guess um trying to pull that together I guess what what's your view about the future what what does the future of medical education look like for both educators and trainees right um so that is that is the million dollar question and I don't I don't know if I'm um exactly qualified to be um deciding the future of medical education but I will say that from our paper what what we really wanted to convey with the paper was that um, I love the the word you use, watershed. I think that's a really, really good um, way of describing what's happening because um, so in the paper, I we talk about um, grief and this is a different type of grief that maybe people are used to. So people talk about grief in terms of um, the five stages often, um, the denial, anger, uh, depression, acceptance, bargaining. Um, but in the paper, we talk about grief um, in a way that draws from uh, Matthew Radcliffe's uh, phenomenology of grief. 
Um, so he's a philosopher. And in Dr. Radcliffe's paper, he describes grief as not necessarily an emotion or a series of emotion or a group of emotions, but rather as a process of gradually um, coming to understand and negotiate a disturbance in one's world um, and the absence of certain life possibilities. And so for a paper, he, he talks a lot about determinacy and indeterminacy. So um, if I'm understanding this correctly, because it's very it's a very philosophical work, but my understanding of determinacy is so as we live our lives in the day to day, we really we follow these certain patterns, routine ways of doing things, um, sort of without thinking. There's this quote from Melu Ponty who says, um, "It's as if the body knows what to do and how to do it." So we sort of go through our lives not really thinking about if we should be doing things differently until this huge event happens. Um, so maybe we lose someone, maybe we lose something, or this big change that creates this huge disturbance in our world that. Radcliffe in his paper calls indeterminacy. Um, so indeterminacy is when we lose sight or we no longer have this this clear sense of how the world works and we don't know where we're going. So I love that watershed um, analogy because, because when we're so used to doing things in a certain way, it's really hard to make changes. But when our whole world is turned upside down, um, that's really the time that that we should be thinking about what to change. And in our study, so we found grief, but we also found relief. So people were grieving things that they lost, but they were also feeling relief over things that they had gained. Um, and both of that, those experiences led to a deeper reflection on how people actually want to live. So when they were grieving things and made them realize um, I really miss this. And this was a really important part of my life and how I did things. Um, but when they experienced relief over things, they realized, oh, I really didn't need this. Like, maybe I, I don't want to have this in my new life. And then also we're, we're gaining certain things that we didn't have. And we're saying, oh, this is a really great thing that I would like to have in my life. So this watershed moment has really got us in deep reflection and conversation. I mean, I can't have a conversation now without bringing up COVID like we're talking about all the time. And so I think it's a really good time right now because we're all talking about our lives. We're talking about our personal lives and our professional lives with everyone we we meet. And we're having these important conversations. And I think these conversations are, are what is going to lead to change in how we do things. Um, and I think that's that's a really important thing. I really like that because um, I think you're right. I think it is those reflective conversations, and and as as you know, um, the sort of reason we picked this topic um, for this month's podcast is the fact that it it was on the back of our hashtag Meadowed Forum on Twitter um, that we host every month, and the topic that we discussed this month was around COVID. Um, and its impact on medical education and so many of the things we've already talked about today were exactly the same as the things that our participants talked about. And I think we're all talking about the same things. And I think that conversation is what will keep alive the memory, I guess. I think for me, historically, smaller things, we all have a very short memory. Um, as a profession, we often have a very short memory and we'll we'll do something smaller. And I think, I think the the swine flu pandemic in the UK that was 
uh, I think around 10 years ago now. Um, I don't think we learned very well from that because actually it ended up being quite a small um, epidemic, um, pandemic. It, it wasn't anywhere near as impactful as the way COVID has been and we'd forgotten. I really hope that if one benefit is to come from something so big, it's that we have that shared memory and we therefore keep these conversations going on to move things forward and not lapsing back, I guess. I, I, I'm really, I, that was a really, really beautiful um, description and summary of your work. And I think you've done it real justice because the way you explained it was exactly how I felt when I read it and resonated with these feelings of relief during some of the stages of the pandemic, relief that I could spend time at home away from the outside world. I'm quite an extroverted individual, but actually realizing I had some introverted tendencies that I could sort of tend to, um, spending time with my partner, um, that was more quality time. And then obviously grieving those grieving you know grieving loss grieving the loss of your working environment grieving sort of real actual loss in the clinical world and in your personal lives like that all resonates and I, uh, touching what on what Rob just said about trying to remember those experiences and documenting it through this sort of work and this research is so important and having it there for historical purposes but also for ongoing educational purposes is so important I think something that you touched on in your other paper as well is something that perhaps we're not doing quite so well is the wellness side of things. And I completely agree. How are we transitioning from this? I don't know whether the similar phrases are going around in where you are, but this post-COVID era, I don't understand how we can be saying that because we're still living with COVID, but how are we dealing with that and how are we dealing with it well and are we prioritizing well-being i'm not sure if we are what what are your experiences from a personal and sort of professional perspective victoria yeah that's um that's a really good point that you bring up and um i think a lot of people have very much been struggling throughout the pandemic um a lot of there are a lot of people who really like working from home and i've met a lot of people like that but in some way, shape, or form, uh, people have been really uh, impacted by the pandemic in a lot of ways. Um, I'm just thinking about uh, the participants who um, had small children at home and who had to balance working from home and also have a crying baby um, to take care of. And I think that even if we're transitioning to, quote unquote, um, post-COVID, I think we're there are still some long-term effects of, of going through something like that. And um, just experiencing all that uncertainty that we're talking about, the fear, um, the exhaustion, all of that has impacted people a lot. At the same time, I think we have, I don't know how things are in the UK and maybe you can, you can tell me more about that, but there have been a lot of initiatives um, since COVID has started. People in leadership positions who have been reaching out to their colleagues who um, have been organizing events around wellness, who have been having these conversations. I think in the paper, there's one quote from a physician who said that in one of the, the meetings that they had with their physician group, they talked about wellness for the first time. And that's something that they had never talked about before. And they were actually having 
asking questions about how are you doing and and checking in with people. And I think there has been, I think it goes back to the point about this collective struggle. Um, we all know that we're all struggling. We're all in this together. So there's been a lot of effort to reach out to people and and to focus on wellness activities. And I think this is a good time to talk about the fact that a lot of the problems with the wellness um wellness initiatives that existed prior to COVID and perhaps during COVID as well. A lot of the challenges with that was that the onus was often on individuals to make changes, um, you know, to get their own help, to practice yoga, to, to do things on their own, to be resilient, to learn how to be more resilient, that sort of thing. But as long as, you know, the systems and the institutions are set up in a way that they have certain expectations for people to work at a certain time, to work at a number of hours, to not necessarily be flexible to people's individual circumstances. Um, there's not really much you can do on the individual level. Um, and so I'm hoping that with COVID and us being in this collective struggle and having these conversations that um, it's not just the early career medical educators, it's not just the residents and, and medical students who are struggling. It's, it's faculty, it's people at their peak, peak of their careers, it's, it's everyone. And I hope that because it's everyone that we'll, ha- we'll have more leeway and more room to make changes on a more uh, systematic or institutional level as well. I think that's really important because that's what's going to make it stick, isn't it? It it's the not the small things. It it's that having it at that institutional level and and having that awareness and keeping it on the agenda. Um, and it, I think that's really important. I know in my current job working for NHS England, um, we get reminded to consider our own and our close colleagues' well being on a fortnightly basis at the top of our directorate briefing, and actually. It's very genuine. It's a genuine, make sure you look at taking your leave, look out for each other. We're not past the pandemic in the more sort of, yes, we're not necessarily where we were two years ago, but we're, we're still going through a difficult time and we, we know that, we see that. And I think it's amazing what coming from that sort of level, that, that can be really powerful. So I think it's nice to hear that that, that seems to be something that is happening in various institutions and I hope that continues I hope that's I guess for me it's one of the key things we can't lose as we move into the new normal is the other phrase that goes with the post-covid world that um, I'm not a fan of either. I'm wondering so um, on the topic of wellness as as well not a great sentence but there you go Um, how on the physician front so I so this uh, my interviews were in 2020, so I imagine things have evolved to a great degree since then. Um, from your experience and from working with people in the hospitals, how on the wellness front, how have things been going? I think obviously this will be sort of potentially country dependent, and there will be huge variations globally and obviously we're we're speaking very much from a high income sort of country perspective it's it it will be different everywhere but I don't know about um yourselves or for the audience but actually at the very beginning there was this huge drive um within the UK population and the government was was really dissuading people um from attending um hospital unless absolutely necessary 
to minimize that pressure on services because we were anticipating this influx of um, COVID, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then there was this, so I started work in an ED department back in March, 2020, at the same time I was lecturing, ED, sorry, emergency department, um, ER, I don't know what everybody calls it. Um, and it was completely quiet. It's like nothing the UK has ever faced. Um, there was a shift. I'm in a I'm in a large city um, in what we call a trauma center. Um, we expect high numbers of attendances. There was one morning where I I couldn't see a sec- an individual patient for three hours because there were none. It was that quiet. And then we began to see rising numbers of COVID, um, and that obviously came with its own pressures. But still, the number of attendances were fairly low where we were because people were still dissuaded from attending um, um, medical services. But this year has been the absolute hardest. And I think that's a national problem because we have a huge number of people, patients that didn't attend potentially when they should have. Um, where their surgeries have been cancelled, elective outpatient appointments have been cancelled. And we are now seeing unprecedented numbers of patients coming through our um, our hospitals in the UK. And we have a complete lack of beds. So there is a, there's a crisis in sort of social services. So there's no, there's not enough sort of community support, which means that we are having sort of record numbers of ambulances cr- queuing to come into our emergency departments because there is no space within our acute hospitals which and I think it's reflected across the country and I don't know whether this is a global perspective but it is more difficult now than it was during the pandemic itself and this this sort of um, mantra of wellness is being sort of projected onto us and we get we, we get a lot there's a lot coming from sort of the higher ups um mm. to try and get us to practice more well-being activities and in, in implementing things within the institutions as well but actually how feasible is that like you said when the system is struggling the system is breaking and how are we meant to educate our students our trainees when clinical pressures are so high i i think that's a, a huge question that's going to be continuing to be struggle to be answered over the next few years to decades actually I don't know what it's like in Canada from a clinical perspective but that's what it's been like here right wow that seems um well thank you for sharing that I'm sorry that um it's it's been it's been so difficult in in um England um I I am more now on the medical education side so I'm not familiar with um how bad things really are here in Canada, but I imagine we're experiencing the same thing because I have heard that a lot of surgery, a lot of people um, having surgeries now who are supposed to have it a long time ago and who were on waiting lists and um, who just with the unfortunate situations, even if um, a surgery wasn't emergent, emergent, it was still needed to, to happen and to have it done so late. And, and as you said, like with, I, I guess it kind of comes back to the idea of the downstream effects that we're not aware of yet. Um, there were the acute effects of COVID that we talked about in our paper, but yeah, I would be very interested in 
in sort of doing a, a follow-up study with this paper having interviews now because things look obviously very different than they did um, at that time. I know a lot of the physicians that we interviewed at the beginning of the pandemic, um, most of them, not all of them, but most of them were saying that um, they had a lot more time on their hands than they used to. Um, but that completely makes sense that now that things are coming back to normal-ish, um, that people are being completely overwhelmed with the amount of patients that weren't seen. And I don't know whether this is similar for you at all, Rob, or any of your participants, but when you had that additional time, um, because you weren't socialising, your workload was less, you take on additional projects and additional um activities and I wonder whether there are a cohort of individuals like physicians but other health professionals other medical educators that now have a lot more on their plate than they previously bargained for and that obviously affects wellness as well I think sort of beginning to tie things up for this for this sort of um, evening what some of the findings that you got out of some of the really incredible work you've done Victoria sort of reflect on those feelings of grief relief and some of the things that the medical education community potentially really didn't like and maybe aren't going to take forward but there were some things that were really appreciated and loved that will go forward um what what would be your sort of take-home messages from your the paper that we discussed um in terms of the exploration of COVID itself on the medical education community, but also your other work on novel technologies as well. What what are your key sort of take-home messages and what, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a really important take-home message, is, uh, message in the, the phenomenology paper would be that people um, just really wanted to be trusted with the autonomy to take control of their own lives and their own schedules. And it's it's not necessarily the same thing for everyone. Um, I think physicians, they have less control over those things, but I'm thinking of a lot of the medical students, um, the researchers, the medical education researchers, the master's students, the PhD students. Um, a lot of people just wanted to um, be trusted to trusted that they would accomplish the same work, um, even if they were given the flexibility to work when they were most productive or to incorporate their work lives into their personal lives in in ways that made sense for them, to um, figure out a balance between working from home and working in person that made sense with how their lives worked out um, in, I'm thinking in terms of childcare and and those types of things. Um, so I, I think a take-home message was we should think critically of about why we hold certain values or certain expectations of the way we work and to reflect on what changes we can make to, to make people's lives better. Um, so that would be, um, I think, a big take-home ex- message of, of that paper. I think that's a really good way to end. Um, so thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been a really, really fascinating discussion. And and to hear 
so many of the experiences of your participants and what you found across both pieces of work resonate with my experience with Katie's experience and I know with many of the people that will have listened as well I think mm-hmm. I think it it gives me a little bit of hope actually that actually that we have got that collective shared we've had that shared loss but we're now on that shared journey moving forward with that so um I feel reinvigorated uh, so thanks so much for joining us Victoria um and actually, I'd love to have you back in the future to to talk more, particularly about all things technology-enhanced learning. So watch this space. <laughs> oh, I would love to. Thank you so much for for having me. It's really been it's really been a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us today. I just want to say again a very special thank you to our guest, Dr Victoria Luong, and my co-host today, Dr Katie Stevenson. I'd also like to thank Dr Asim Javed, who edits these episodes, Dr Cleone Pardo, who designed the logo for the podcast, and to Umlunya, who made our theme music. Finally, thanks to everyone on the TASME committee who's supported the production of this episode. I've been Dr Rob Cullum. You can find out more about TASME, ASME and our many other groups at asme.org.uk and make sure you follow us on Twitter at TASME underscore UK. Join us next month for our second episode where we'll be talking all things sustainability and planetary health. What role should medical education play? Thank you for listening to TASME Time and we look forward to seeing you again soon.